Um, I want to do something real quick before I dive into my message, because I think it's important. If you'll let me just back up for just a second, I want to give you a quick teaching. What I'm about to give you um, is probably a good three semesters worth of college course, and I'm going to try to do it in four minutes, okay, um, to, to, to give you something, because I believe it's important that we don't just know what we believe, but also why we believe it, all right? And so um, I want to talk to you this morning about the inerrant Word of God. Um, the, the Bible, we said the Bible is inerrant. That means it's without error. We believe that this morning in this place. So if you're with us, you say, well, I'm not sure I believe that. And I would say to you this morning, well, we love you and we're glad you're here, even if you don't believe that. But I'm going to say we as a house, as a body, we believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. We believe this for a few things. First of all, in 2 Timothy, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. It comes from Him, from the throne room of God, and it's been given to men to write down. So God breathed it. He inspired it. We call it the inspired Word of God. So men were inspired. These 66 books we have in our hand were inspired to men, and they wrote down what the Lord inspired them to write. In 2 Peter 1.20, it says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but how? But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is this simply saying? That the Word of God comes from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First, uh, Thessalonians also tells us this, is that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So we believe the Bible is the word of God. Now, this is what we would call a presuppositional argument, which is a big lofty theological word that theologians toss around. Um, and what that means is we're using the Bible to prove the Bible which seems like a big circular loop, and some people say, you can't do that, you can't prove the Bible with the Bible, and I would say this morning, if all you have is the Bible and faith in that word, it is enough. It would, I would say is enough. But then there's this other camp called the evidential um, camp, where they're not presuppositional, they're evidential, and so let me throw about five things. If you're here this morning, it's like, well, I don't believe the word of God, well, I'm going to tell you, first of all, I want you to look at a couple things. First is this. Um, this is some ancient documents. Some of this has been cut out. This is the quick and dirty version. Some of these guys right here, uh, when they were written, the earliest copy we have, and the time span between the time they were written and the manuscript that we have in our hand, right? So it's like they were written in this day, and then they were copied, 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 and now we have a copy. And you can see there, uh, the one that's cut off there is Homer's Iliad. Did anyone have to read that in high school? I'm sorry. It's long and it, it was written about 900 B.C., and, and the earliest copy we have is from 400 A.D., and so there's a 500-year time span there, and we have 643 copies of that. Um, that's a lot. But of the New Testament, that's the bottom one. The time span is probably shorter uh, than 25 years for some things, but we have 24,000 copies of it. So some of these things that they're handing you in school and saying, this happened, right? They're giving you, say, this really happened, study this. But there was just a few copies and a long period of time between when it was written and the earliest manuscript. But of, of the Word of God, we have 24,000 manuscripts, and we keep finding them. They keep popping up. And some of you probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found um, about 60, 70 years ago now. And we found those, and we found those like, uh-oh, what did we find? And as we started going through the Dead Sea Scrolls, guess what? They match with what we already had. So now, today, we actually have, in the Greek, we have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament in the Greek. And guess what? It all corresponds. It all correlates. It all matches. Now, what we do not have is what we call the original autographs. That's, if you hear that term ever, the autograph's not like, hey, you want my autograph? And you sign it. The original autographs is the original piece of paper that Paul would have written on. We don't have that anymore. And I'm kind of glad we don't, because I would be afraid if we actually had that, that people might like hang it up behind a glass and go and pray to it and worship it. It, it might happen. But God in his sovereignty said, no, you're not going to have that. 
I believe God is sovereign. I believe God is sovereign. He preserves his word. I believe that with all my heart. And so what happens is when copies are made, people will copy and copy and copy. Um, Sometimes there's what we call transmission errors. And so people will be like copying. Okay, I've got it because they didn't have copy machines, you know. So people will just have to hand copy things over, and sometimes they would make mistakes. This actually does happen. And when we find new copies of the New Testament, we do find differences between them. But can I tell you, the differences we find does not change the content of what we're reading about. For example, let me give you a few real quick here. Um, there's a King Jehoiakim. One copy says he was eight years old when he became king. Another copy says he was 18. Now, you do some math and research, you find out, well, he was actually 18. You can figure it out if you read it and study it a little bit. But two different copies said two different things. Now, does that change the truth of the Word of God, or does that just say someone accidentally copied the wrong thing? It, another copy area was uh, the sun god. Was it Hadadezer or Hadaderezer or whatever? Like a misspelling. You're like, I don't care. But you need to know, in some of the original copies, there's differences. Um, Sometimes in the New Testament, there's this one that happens, and there's, there's actually tons of these. You can go look them up on your own. Sometimes they add with the scribes and said, well, Jesus spoke to the scribes. They'll say, Jesus spoke to the scribes and Pharisees. So someone added that in there. Does it change what Jesus was saying? No, it just says he was talking to the religious leaders. And one of my favorites, this isn't actually from the original Greek, but the 1631 King James Bible actually said, thou shalt commit adultery. So for that 50 years, those Christians really struggled in their lives. Um, So what do we have that also proves that the Bible is true? Well, other historians that lived at the same time as the Bible actually wrote about things that happened in the Bible. Josephus was one of the ones that gets quoted a lot. He wrote a lot of things and recorded things. He recorded about Christians and Christ. There's these other here's like Tacitus and Pliny the Younger, all these different historians. And guys, I'm just... Like, I just pulled a bunch and threw them on a PowerPoint and just jetted. Like, you could study this for an entire... There's people who dedicate their lives to study this. These are things outside the Bible that point to the Bible and say it's true. Um, We also have archaeological evidence. For example, ancient tablets that actually say, hey, there was a global flood. These aren't in the Bible, but other things. Um, Archaeologists who found the wall of Jericho, guess where it was? Down, collapsed down, just like the Bible said it was. Um, cities that are mentioned in the Bible, like Gezer. What a great name for a city. The city of Ge- Solomon City of Gezer. Archaeologists find these things. And guys, like I said, I just grabbed a few. There's, there's hundreds of these. So archaeology proves the Bible. This is one problem like the Book of Mormon has. Archaeology does not prove the Book of Mormon. What does the Book of Mormon say? The Book of Mormon says there were elephants and horses in North America. There's no elephants here. And I'm like, well, woolly mammoths. Okay, fine. But there were definitely no horses here. Those were brought over with the explorers. Like, like there were no horses here. Like, archaeology, and the great cities. Where are the cities? Like, they weren't here. So the Book of Mormon does not have archaeology that matches it like the Bible does. Um, the Old Testament was quickly agreed upon by church fathers. And, and these letters that we now know as the New Testament... Like, they were being passed around by early Christians, like, you've got to read this. They understood there was something about it, that it was the inspired word of God. And so, like, the disciples of the disciples, as the disciples began to die and be martyred, the disciples of the disciples began to pass around their letters and to collect them and say, this is the word. Like, these words are the words of God inspired to these men. And they agreed upon them until they came together and they finally agreed and put it into canon and say, this is the word of God today. So what we have to ask ourselves then is, is like when we're reading different translations, the, the Bible wasn't written in English, it was written in, in Greek. When people translate the Bible into different languages, they have to make choices of what words to use, right? And, and that's why there's different types of translations. I, I want to tell you this story real quick. The smartest man I've ever known, um, he was my friend in college, he was six foot ten. I looked up to him. One day we went to a movie and someone said, how tall are you? Like behind our back. 
how tall are you? And I'm used to people asking me that question all the time. How tall are you? So I turned around to answer. He wasn't looking at me. He was looking at my buddy. Um, his name is David, smartest man I ever have met. Um, photographic memory. Like, I'm not saying he was smart. He literally had a photographic memory. Once he read it on a page, he never forgot it. He made 100% in every college course he had. That's impossible. And we were at, like, he could have been a brilliant mathematician, an engineer. He had flirted with the eye of becoming a doctor. You know what he ended up doing? Going to the Middle East to learn their language so he could translate the Bible into their native language because there wasn't a, a Bible in their language. And I can't, through the microphone, tell you what countries he's in because it's a closed country, and if he gets found out, he'll be at best kicked out of the country and at worst killed. And um, I always love the updates I get from him. This is the smartest man I've ever known, and what's he doing? He's translating the Bible from the original language into another language so people can have the good news of Jesus Christ. And so you need to have confidence in the word you study and, and look at it carefully. If you look at this continuum up here, it, it's like a choice of do you want more thought for thought or more word for word? And, and over here on the right, you have like the message Bible, which really takes a lot of liberties in describing things for you. It translates a lot of things for you and, and gives you what to think. And if, if you're not a really good reader, message Bible is great for you. Um, if, if for kids or if you struggled in school, like, man, I just I, I have a hard time reading, it's a good one. It's a good one for you. But if you really need to study doctrine, like what is the Bible actually saying, I would not use the message for that because they've, they've made it, taken a lot of liberties with a lot of things. So it's a good entry point to the Word of God. But we have to understand even this Bible that I study all the time, this isn't the original script, Right? but it contains it, and it's the best I've got. And I still believe that God in his sovereignty has brought me this book today so I can know him more. And so I can still have confidence, no matter what Bible I have in my hand, I can have confidence that the Lord's gonna use it to reveal Jesus Christ to me. And it's always important to ask, well, who were the guys who translated this? Because they might have had a horse in the race, and they might have translated things kind of strangely or differently. And if you ever come up with some new doctrine that you've never heard of before, um, it's best to ask some other believers, hey, is this real? It could just be your translation is kind of messed up a little bit. It could be that you're messed up a little bit, right? Um, we don't know, but, but that's the reason we have one another too. And so I wanted to say that this morning um, as it gets started because, and here's why I went through all of that, we are going to be here in just a moment when I begin to preach we're going to be going to John chapter 8. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be skipping the first story in John chapter 8, which is the woman caught in adultery, which is a great story. How many love that story? And I actually, I believe with all my heart, actually happened. But what you need to know is the earliest manuscripts of the Bible do not include this story. It's not in there. But somehow it was passed down through oral tradition until finally someone said, you know what? We all keep saying it's really in there, so let's go ahead and add it. So John himself probably did not write the first part of John chapter 8, and I think that's important to know. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be coming back to this story later on because I absolutely believe with all my heart that God in his sovereignty has preserved this story for us today. But there's a reason I'm going to skip over it and come back to it, and I don't want you to doubt your Bible, but I do think I, you know what I think? I think the fact that the translators were honest and said, hey, guess what? John chapter 8 to verse 11 isn't in the earliest manuscripts. You know what that does for me? It makes me think this is even more true. Like, what if they were trying to hide it? Like, let's not tell them that was not actually in there. I think, I think that would make me like, wait a minute, what else are you hiding? But the fact that we're honest about it and we say, you know what? This wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. I think what that does is it produces in us a faith to say, you know, maybe it wasn't in there, but for some reason God wanted us to know this story, so he preserved it. There's only one other place in Scripture like that, and it's the ending of Mark. It's called the long ending of Mark, and you can go study that on your own sometime if you will. But nothing about these stories change the doctrine of who Jesus is. 
All they do is confirm what we already know in other places of the Bible. So they're in here, and I love that we have these stories. So we will be coming back to John chapter 8. So turn with me, though, to John chapter 7 as I begin to actually preach this morning. And thank you for bearing with me for a moment. It's something I felt like I needed to do. Sometimes I have to do a little teaching, and I think that's shepherding and pastoring, and hopefully I brought some confidence to the Word of God for you. And if you said all that, Pastor Drew, was fine and great, but I just believe the Word of God because it's the Word of God, more power to you. I, I think that's good enough. I don't think you need any of those evidences. I think you can just say the Word of God is the Word of God, and I believe it, and that's good. Go with me to John chapter 7. I'm going to remind you of a few things before I dive into John chapter 8, and you'll see why I'm skipping over this story. In John chapter 7, remember they're at the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacles. You could, and we would probably call it um, the Feast of the Tents. And they would build these little tent structures outside, and they would stay in them for a week. It was a joyous time. Kids looked forward to it. It was camping out with the family for a week. And the whole point of it was to remember what God had done for them in the wilderness. We sang about it this morning. When we sang that song, Egypt, remember that? You, you brought us out of Egypt into the promised land. And while they were on their way to the promised land, God kept providing for them over and over and over again. They didn't have food. God gave them manna. They didn't have water. God brought water out of a rock. They didn't know where to go. We sang this this morning. A cloud would guide them by day, and a pillar of fire would guide them by night. How, how crazy would that be? You're wandering through the desert like, where do we go? Where do we go? Um, some of us might get in an argument with our spouse when we're on a trip. You're supposed to turn left. No, it says turn right. They're in the desert. They don't know which way to go, and God makes it real clear. I'm going to do a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. How crazy would that be to see? is you can have confidence in knowing which direction you're supposed to go. Where are we going? We're going that way. How do you know? Well, do you see that column of fire? It's pretty easy. And so this is what they were doing, camping out that whole week. They would camp out, and the rules were when you built your, your booth outside, and some people in the city would build them on top of their houses, and other people would take there's and built them just outside the city. So if you were traveling into the city for this feast, before you got to the city, you'd start walking through a temporary city of booths that had been set up, a camping site, if you will, that surrounded the city. And people laughing and playing music and eating and all these things, and people telling stories about what God had done for them in the wilderness hundreds of years before. One thing that the priests would do is they would take water in the temple. And these, this temple complex was huge, 35 acres. That's a huge temple complex. How many, it's a big campus. And the priests would take these, uh, these basins of water and they would pour them out to represent when Moses struck the rock and water came from the rock and God provided. It was a representation of what God had done for them in the wilderness. And that's why, actually, if you look down in chapter 7, uh, verse 38, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He says that, rivers of living water. And it would have made the religious leaders mad because they would have realized he's referencing that symbolism of, of the water coming out of the rock. It was also said that during that time, they would light these giant lamps in the court of the women. These giant lamps in the court of the women. The court of the women was also the treasury. They had different giving spots. They looked like um, these trumpet funnel things, shofar looking things. And it's where they would put their money in for taxes and tithes, where they would do their giving. It's in the court of the women, the treasury area. And it was the biggest area. It was the biggest area where people could gather and congregate. So go with me to Chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 12. Remember, this is at the time of the Feast of the Booths. Actually, I want to skip to the very end of the chapter for just a second. Verse 58 and 59, it says this, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is going to end with them wanting to kill Jesus. What he's about to say is going to want to cause them to want to stone him to death. So we need to understand that this isn't just some sort of meek little Bible story we're reading, that Jesus is stirring the pot and people are getting mad. Now, I know this is a Sunday morning. The room is that right temperature. We're all kind of comfortable and we're like, oh, yeah. But I'm telling you, when people heard Jesus say these things for the first time, they were on the edge. Of the you ever been just mad at something somebody said? And you just, you just, I mean, you couldn't even sit still. Like, you had to get up and pace. I'm like, I can't believe he would. Anybody ever? This is what's going on right here. Like, these people are mad. So this is what Jesus says. Again, in verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bringing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, and I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is, is what? It's true. For it is not I alone who judge, but also but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And they asked, or excuse me, they said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Think about that. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. And Jesus will not be touched. Jesus will not be arrested until it's his time. And that you can have that same confidence for your life, that the enemy, he's going to try to jar you around and do his thing with you. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign. and He will have his way. And your hour will not come until it's your hour to come. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is in control. And this morning, I can stand and worship with confidence because he's got me. He's got me. Notice, where is he seeing these things? Where did he say he spoke these things? Where? In the treasury, the court of the women. There was the court of the women. There was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and then the court of the priests in there just kept, and then we got all the way into the Holy of Holies. Like this thing would narrow down, and in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God was supposed to be. So each layer was supposed to be, you're getting closer and closer to God. But here in the court of the women, the largest court, this is where these giant, these giant uh, lanterns would be, that they would light. And they had a purpose. You know what their representation was supposed to be? It was supposed to be a representation of that pillar of fire in the wilderness because it's the Feast of the Booths. And it said that, that in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles that every door had light on it. Now, we're used to that in our day and age, but you got to realize back then when it was dark, it was dark. You couldn't just flip on a light switch or get out your phone and tap on a light. When it was dark, it was dark. So the, the light coming from the temple and around the city would have been stunning at this time of year. And Jesus is standing here in this court with these giant lanterns that have been brought out just for this week, and he's saying this, I am the light of the world. He's calling his shot. And people, they get it. Now, we don't get it because we're not there. But people are seeing these lanterns, and they're seeing him say it. They're like, wait a minute. What is he saying? And just so you know, like at the end of this, he says, before Abraham was... I am, we know that, that's the special name of God. I am. In the Greek, it's ego emi. Ego emi, which is almost redundant. He's not just saying, I am. Ego, it means I or self, and emi also means I am. He's almost being, saying, I am, I am. That's who I am. It's exactly what the burning bush said to Moses in the desert. He said, who do I say 
is sending me to these people, tell him that the I am has sent you. I am that I am. And this is what Jesus is saying. Actually, when he says it here in verse 12, he's not just saying, I am the light of the world. He's saying, ego, emi, the light of the world. He's using that special name of God, and it would have stirred them up. I'm like, what are you saying? He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And for those of you in the room, which is all of us, before we knew Christ, we know it was darkness, didn't we? Before we knew Christ, or some of us, maybe we grew up knowing Christ sort of, but then we walked away, we know that that was that period of darkness, no light, and and we were stumbling to find ourselves. And this is a phrase that John likes to use a lot. In fact, John, he writes another book. He writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He writes those. And the way he starts 1 John is the same way almost he starts John. He says this. This is the message. In 1 John chapter 5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And in verse 7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Like if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But we don't like the light when we're not saved. We like to hide in the darkness. We like to hide in the darkness because we're ashamed. It's like Adam and Eve when they realized they got busted. Like, oh, we sin, and here came God looking for them. Where are you guys? Like you can hide from God. Whether they hid from God and they try to get some leaves, covering themselves up. Because it was shame. They had shame, and shame causes us to want to hide in the dark. How ironic it is that the God of the universe, what he does is he pulls our sin into the light. And the reason we don't like that is, for me and you, we pull our sin into the light, we start rejecting each other. When I see your stuff, I don't want you anymore. When I realize how messed up you are, I don't want you anymore. Get away from me. You're ugly. Oh, you did that? I don't want to be your friend anymore. Like, I'm ashamed of you. That's the way the world works. It's cancel culture. Oh, you said that on Twitter 10 years ago? You're done. And that's why we try to hide sin even today. Like, we don't want people to know our stuff. But how crazy is it? The God of the universe, the most righteous, pure being ever in existence, He actually drags all our muck and mire into the light and says, okay, I'm going to make a trade. And he purifies us. He doesn't reject us. And y'all, that's the way we're supposed to be one for another, which we're going to talk about here in just a a second. Like when, when we find out that one of our brothers and sisters in Christ have been doing something they shouldn't, we drag their stuff into the light, not so we can say, ew, look how awful you are, but to say, There's grace and mercy at the feet of Jesus, and we need him today. How many would agree with that? There's grace and mercy at the feet of Jesus, and we need him today. The scripture tells us that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Over and over again, Jesus is called the light. In fact, that's the way the book of John starts. If you flip over to John chapter 1, I think it's verse 5. In him... Verse 4, in him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or another way you could translate it is the darkness cannot even understand it or comprehend it. Y'all, you're going to preach Jesus to some people, and they will never understand it, but we still preach Jesus anyway. And then it goes on to say, there was a man who was sent for God, whose name was John, and he came to bear witness about the light that all might believe, But he himself was not the light. He just came to bear witness about the light. That's our job. You know, realize that we're not the light. We're just here to bear witness about the light. Now, Jesus then later says, you are the light of the world. Why are we the light of the world? Because he's the light shining through us. He is the light. All we're here to do is bear witness about him. And so we begin to see people healed and saved and and things start happening. It's not F-hop that gets the glory. It's Jesus gets the glory because he is the light. And everything we do should point to him. Do we want people to be healed? Yes. Why? Because it's good to have people healed? No. Because one, it's the will of the Lord. But why is it the will of the Lord? To reveal Jesus. 
Do we want people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Yeah, why? So they can speak in tongues and act crazy? Nope. Why? So Jesus can be made famous and glorified because he is the light. Like literally everything we do is for the glory of God so Jesus can be revealed. And we have to put our focus on that at all times. Why is it the Lord's will to heal every time? Because he wants his son Jesus to be revealed in the lives of people. He wants Jesus to be glorified because Jesus is the light. Healing is not the light. Jesus is the light. Speaking in tongues isn't the light. Jesus is the light. Are you with me this morning? We've talked about this next section before. I won't dive in it too deep. We know that in um, Jewish tradition, you had to have two witnesses to prove something was true. You couldn't just be yourself. And Jesus, he actually says, you think you need two witnesses, but I'm saying I'm witness enough. You know why? You know why, Wes, that they felt like you needed two witnesses? Because we're liars. We like to lie. It's human nature. The sin nature likes to lie. So why do we need two witnesses? Well, because one of you might be lying, so we need two. Hopefully, both y'all ain't liars. But the scripture says, out of the mouths of two or three witnesses, let a thing be established, right? And Jesus says, yeah, that's what you guys need, but that's because you guys are liars. You're sinful. I don't need a second witness because I am pure and I am truth. Remember when I had, to have you, when I had you say true? Jesus is true. He doesn't need a second witness, but he says, you know what? I'll give you one anyway. It's my father. Jesus is true, and he can bear witness about himself because he is true. Look down in verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Now, it's getting heated right now. Just before this, they asked him a question when he said, when he said, um, my father also bears witness to me. They said, well, where is your father? Now, this is not just a, well, where is your father? This is an insult. They're calling him an illegitimate child in this moment. Some theologians think that they might have even been referencing the fact that Joseph wasn't really his father. Others think, well, maybe they didn't know that, but they were just saying, oh, yeah? You don't even have a dad. We have a word for that in our culture today still that's a dirty, foul word. It's an insult. They're insulting Jesus here. Oh, yeah, you don't need, who's your dad? doesn't stir Jesus up at all. He says, yeah, you don't know me or my dad. You don't know. And he responds, you're going to die in your sin. And we don't realize how heavy this statement is. You will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. This is heavy language here. So the Jews said to him, he will kill himself since he says where I'm going, you can't come. Like, like, that's another insult. Like, suicide in that culture in that day and age was the worst of the worst. In fact, in Jewish tradition at that time, if you killed yourself, you would go not just to hell, but the deepest, darkest part of hell. That was their tradition at the time. And so what they're doing is saying, Jesus, he's going to kill himself. Like, they're basically saying, this guy can just go to hell. Pretty harsh language in this beautiful book of John. He says, you're from below, I'm from above. And then he repeats it in verse 24. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. We need to understand, body of Christ, that someone dying in their sins is the worst thing that can happen to them. And, and we live in a culture that's afraid to talk to people about that today. It, there was a time, which I believe was maybe skewed maybe the wrong way, when all evangelistic preachers would do, all they would do is try to scare you about hell. 
You're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. I'm not sure fear of hell is a great reason to turn your life to Christ. But I'll say this, neither is saying, well, if you give your life to Christ, when you die, you'll go to heaven. You'll go to heaven. You'll go to heaven. Like, that's not what Jesus was about. He wasn't just trying to give you afterlife insurance. Like, what Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray that his kingdom would come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, when you give your life to Christ, it's not that you get to go to heaven after you die. It's that heaven comes and is a part of your life here and now and after you die. Like, the point is, like, if I find Christ, I find something here and now. But there is a reality of hell that is a truth. In fact, can I tell you, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. Explicitly in the New Testament, about 30-plus times is hell mentioned explicitly, but it's referenced about 150, 160 times. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 10. Because what I believe is, as us today, we, we don't understand that if people die in their sin, they're, they're destined for an eternity without Christ. In Matthew 10, 28, it says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot fear the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a few different words used for hell in the New Testament. This one right here is the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was literally a, a burn pile outside the city that was kept going, where they would throw their garbage and refuse. It was just ongoing. Sometimes criminals' bodies would be taken out there and tossed on it. This is the word that Jesus used to describe hell. If you flip over in Matthew chapter 25, some of you know this, this story, Matthew 25. What's happening here is, is Jesus is describing a situation at the end of time where Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever dealt with sheep or goats, but a lot of times shepherds would keep sheep and goats, sheep and goats together. But there's a couple of times they would separate them. One was when they were feeding them, and another time is when they were laying down to sleep. And, and here's why. Sheep are quite docile and kind of dumb and will follow along and Goats? Has anybody ever had a goat? Those things are only little suckers. I mean, they just get in everything like our dog. Man, our dog might be looking for a new home. Um, no, he's a good dog. He's just a puppy. Um, Lord help us. And so shepherds would separate the sheep from the goats because it can cause problems. And so this, this story that Jesus is describing here would not have been unfamiliar to the audience at the time, the separating of the sheep and the goats. And these troublemaking goats, he actually says he turns to them, those on his left, the goats are on his left in verse 41, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 tells us, and he will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a, there's a couple things you need to know. One is hell is a real place. It's not a figurative place. Jesus never described it as just a way of life. There's a, a popular Christian author back about 10 years ago um, who tried to make the case that hell wasn't actually a real literal place, that hell is just when people go through bad things on earth. And don't get me wrong, sometimes we describe bad times as hell. But I'm going to be very clear. The Bible is clear. There is a hell. There is an eternal fire prepared for those. Like it's, and it's actually for the devil and his angels. That's who it was actually made for. But Scripture time and time again describes those who reject Christ, who die in their sin, as going to in this place. Revelation 21 8, I'll just read it to you. It says, But as for the, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, 
Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's a stunning story over in Luke chapter 16. I want to go there real quick. And, and Pastor Drew, why are you telling this? You're trying to scare us. No, I, I, I want to sober you up that hell is a real place where real people will go if they do not know Christ. For context... Jesus has just told the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son, which we all love the story of the prodigal son. The Lord is showing his heart in these stories. But in Luke chapter 16, if we look over, um, we're going to actually skip down to verse 23. But the, the story Jesus is telling is about a rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man was rich and Lazarus was poor and and homeless, and when they died, the rich man goes to Hades. He goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven. And in verse 23, he says, in Hades, he's being tormented, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus by his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in this flame. Y'all, that hell is so intense that this man is, he just wants one drop of water on his tongue. And Abraham replies, child, remember that in your life you receive good things and Lazarus bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides, there's this great chasm. If we skip down to verse 27, he says, then I beg you, this is the rich man, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. Warn them that they may, they don't come to this place also to torment. And Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. They have a Bible. They have the word of the Lord. Let them hear them. He says, no, no, no. He says, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. And what G, this is what Jesus is saying. He's like, he's giving a foreshadow of himself coming back from the dead. And this is what he responds. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone were to rise from the dead. Even if I rise from the dead, some people still won't believe. They will die in their sin. We, we have to get past this place where, well, well if, if people just saw a great miracle, they'd come to Jesus. I've seen people see great miracles. I've seen people experience miraculous miracles and still reject Jesus outright. Well, if, if I could just, like, if I could... If I could just go back in time and see Jesus myself rising from the dead, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. Like the reality is there are those who will die in their sins and and Jesus doesn't stop the story there. We stop the story there because that's the end of the chapter. But Jesus continues talking here. Then he says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Like he's warning them. Like I just told you about how terrible hell is Now, let me tell you how terrible it is to die in your sin. Temptation to sin is sure to come. Look at verse 17 in Luke. But woe to the one through whom they come. Like if you cause someone to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Don't sin. Sin sends you to a really bad place. And if your brother sins, rebuke him. You know what that word rebuke means? It means like to the degree which he sins should be the degree of your correction. If it's a little sin, correct him a little. If it's a big sin, correct him a lot. It's actually the same word they use to honor someone. If they did something a little bit great, 
Honor them a little bit. If they did something really awesome, honor them a lot. Like, if you see your brother sinning, you want to love him well, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. What are we doing? We're dragging his sin out into the light. Well, I can't do that. That would dishonor him. I'm telling you right now, if you see a brother or sister in Christ walking in sin, the best thing you can do for them is to drag their sin into the light. The Scripture tells us how do we do that. Gently, graciously, humbly. Why? Because we have been forgiven too. My sister Jamie says like this, is there anyone in your life that, like who in your life do you allow to tell you no? And if there's no one in your life that's allowed to drag your sin out into the light, I'm going to say right now, are you walking with Christ actually or are you just pretending? Or do you stay away from people that might call you out on your crap? Oh, I don't want to be friends with them because sometimes, sometimes they, they bring up stuff I don't want to talk about. They, they, I kind of tell they know my stuff. I don't, I don't want them to do that to me. If he sins against you seven times in a day and then turns to you seven times saying, I'm sorry, I repent, guess what? You must forgive him seven times. Well, you just keep saying, I'm sorry. Well, then you just keep saying, I forgive you. None of us like that this morning. I don't even like that. Jesus, we don't like this right now. How many know this is life, though? This is life. Like, we don't want to die in our sins. And that's, that's actually what Jesus said at the end of teaching the Lord's Prayer. It says, forgive us as we forgive those who have sinned against us. But if you don't forgive someone, neither will you be forgiven. You will die in your sins. Now, this morning, I... I want to be clear, I'm not trying to cause anyone in the room to question their faith or their security in Christ. If you said yes to Jesus, and you're walking according to his word, you're headed to heaven. Jesus is your Savior and Lord, then that's okay. But if, you're, if this kind of preaching causes you to doubt, that's a question you need to ask yourself. Am I really saved? And if you have to ask yourself that question, I would say to you this morning, it's time to surrender your life to Christ. More importantly, I would say this morning to most of us, because I do believe that most of us in the room are walking with Christ, is how do we not sin? It's like we were talking about this morning, not by saying, oh, I can't sin, I can't sin, I can't sin. How do we not sin? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. Not by keeping our eyes on, oh, I got to get away from that. It is kind of nice. Like, (laughs) the more we try not to sin, the harder it is to struggle. But the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the light, the easier it is to walk towards him. And I would say for us today, and this is, worship team, can you come? This is why I believe with all my heart that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit today. Is because We know people that need Jesus. This passage ends by saying they didn't understand what he was saying because he was talking to them about the Father. Like, they just didn't get it. What is he even talking about? He's talking about the Father. What? At the end of this passage, he says this. Look at with me real quick. This is an important one for me to read. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. I want to say this again. That word he maybe shouldn't be there. That's that ego, yimi. When you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will realize, then you will know that I am the I am. That's what he's saying here. What does it mean, lift Jesus up? It means to praise Jesus, right? We're going to lift him up. You guys ready to lift up Jesus today? We used to sing a song, lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher. That's the worst thing. It tells us in the other gospel, he says the same thing. What does he mean by being lifted up? It says this, he spoke concerning the cross. That when we lift Jesus up, it wasn't us lifting him up. 
because we're praising him. It's when he is lifted up, it's talking about the cross. He's saying here that when I am lifted up, when I am lifted up on the cross, then you will know that I am. Like it's all about the cross. It all comes back to the cross. They kept saying, where are you going? Where is he going? He's going to the cross. And I would say this morning, it's not that he's going to the cross, but he's going through the cross. He's going through the cross to resurrection for our redemption this morning. And not just for yours, but for those that you love that don't know him. Those that you know that if they died today would die in their sin. But I have good news this morning. Jesus came not just to beat us up and say, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. But he came to give life and life more abundantly. And he wants to fill you up this morning so you can declare this good news to everyone around you. It is time for us, Forerunner House of Prayer, to get serious about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to declare that he was lifted up because he is the I am. He is God in the flesh. It says here at the end of this, I love this, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. And that's our heart and prayer. And this morning I'd say, if if you have not made Jesus Savior and Lord of your life, like today's the day to believe in him. Today's the day to put your trust in Christ. When I was a kid, we call it getting saved getting saved it it, kind of has lost its meaning over the years today I would say you put your trust in him and you will find new life it's like the prophetic word we had earlier today the old things have passed away the old cruddy stuff that always made you feel awful and shameful they have passed away and all things have become new and that new life is for you this morning but I would say to you this morning if you do know Christ you're saying Pastor Drew I haven't been sharing Jesus like I know I should. This is one of those moments where it's time to start stirring up your most holy faith right now. We want to lay hands on you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Y'all, we don't know. We don't know how much time we have. This week, I went to the funeral of, of one of my coworkers, Larissa Allen. Loved the Lord with all her heart, all her soul, and all her might. It was one of those good funerals. It hurt. We cried precious woman of God but she's with Christ today and I would say for all of us we don't know we don't know when the people around us are going to step into eternity but eternity is real more importantly than that today is real today is real and we have loved ones we see them going through crap day after day and if they would just get a hold of who Jesus was it would change everything for them They would find that new life. Some of us, the reason we struggle sharing is we just haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We want to lay hands on you this morning to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. If I could get my leaders to come and join me, we're going to pray that you be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 